boy who thought he had all the answers, but surprisingly he just couldn't figure out life. He was working at a job that he didn't really enjoy, and he was filling his free time with anything and everything that could just give him some happiness. He was funny. He was clever. He was probably pretty attractive. But as quick as he was to convince everyone around him that he had life figured out, that he was content, he just desperately hoped that somehow life would pick him up and move him and place him in the middle of his life where everything would just be figured out for him. It was when he met a professor at Lancaster Bar- or at Columbia Bible College, and this man was a perfect stranger, and that he would be forced to come to grips with, with justification through faith. The professor drew for him a, a picture on a napkin with a large chasm between two sides. One side being the world and death and the other side being eternity with God. You see, it was just one question. It's just, it was just one question. Which side are you on that stopped the boy in his tracks? Well, what do you mean, what side am I on? I'm in the middle. I'm not perfect, but I'm not bad either. Ah, said the professor, you see, you cannot be in the middle. You need to pick a side. So the boy drew himself on the very edge of the world. See, the answer to crossing the chasm is Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's not about being perfect, and and it's not about being not that bad. It's just Jesus. I mean, nothing can cross the chasm except the cross of Christ. And as much as we want to embrace this truth, we find ourselves pushing back a little because we want there to be more. There needs to be more. There needs to be more of us. I mean, what more can I do? I mean, more of Jesus and just whatever you want to fill the blank with. I mean... If you don't work hard for something, how will you ever appreciate it? I mean, this is the lesson that I learned as a, as a child growing up. I saw this lived out. I, I can remember specific examples of my childhood, of stories of my grandfathers. Both, both my grandfathers worked very hard their entire lives. And, and, and these stories that I've heard always reflected how hard they worked. Um, my, my mother's father, um, he worked for Pentaprime Dairy. And he worked there, and he got up every morning, and he delivered milk. And this man was faithful to his job. My father's father, uh, he, he had a variety of different jobs, but at one point he worked for a moving company, and this man would work harder than anybody else. Uh, there are stories of him strapping a refrigerator to his back and taking it up flights of stairs. Clearly, I don't have his build. I mean, we're always told nothing in life is free. A couple of weeks ago, we received this great piece of <laughs> this great piece of mail, and attached to this glossy paper, this beautiful printed paper, were pictures of cars and money, and 
and on it there was a key. And if that key had the correct numbers on it, or it may have even lit up blue, you won $15,000. Now let me be really honest for a second. The Harrisons could really use $15,000. So the mail came at just the right time. But even knowing that $15,000 would be extremely helpful, how seriously did I take this piece of mail? Not very. And to the shock and utter horror to a few of my children, I threw it out. But Dad, it says you won. So I encouraged them to read the very, very, very small print at the bottom of the advertisement. I mean, nothing in life is free, right? I don't know about that. John Stott wrote in the message of Galatians, it is the good news that sinful men and women may be brought into acceptance with God. Not because of their works, but through a simple act of trust in Jesus Christ. Of this doctrine, Martin Luther writes, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all goodness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Justification by faith in Jesus is a truth that we all need to know well. And hopefully this morning, it will be lovingly beat into your head. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to open them up to Galatians chapter 2. And we're going to pick up the the letter in verses 15 through 21. Last week we spent some time in chapter 1. This week we'll be in chapter 2. Next week we'll move to chapter 5. And then week 4 we'll be in chapter 6. So this week we find ourselves in chapter 2 starting at verse 15. This is what Paul writes. We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ... The Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. J.I. Packard. J.I. Packard wrote, For the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears the whole world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of God the Savior. The doctrines of election, 
of effectual calling, regeneration, and repentance, of adoption, of prayer, of the church, the ministry, the sacraments, all are to be interpreted and understood in the light of justification by faith. For this is how the Bible views them. Last week we laid our foundation with the gospel, the one gospel. And this week we continue to build upon that foundation as we unpack the nature of justification. And as we find ourselves in chapter 2 of Galatians, it's probably a good reminder to, to remember What's happening to prompt Paul to write this letter? I mean, there's some confusion going on in the Galatian church over how somebody could be right with God. Or basically, there was confusion over how somebody could be justified before God. And false teachers have have infiltrated the church. And were teaching this false doctrine. They, They taught that if a person could come into right relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, it was only with the obedience to the law. That they would be justified by obeying the law. Apostle Peter falls prey to this teaching. And this is the point where Paul publicly confronts and rebukes him regarding his hypocrisy. And this, this piece of scripture that we're looking at this morning is most likely part of that confrontation Paul gives to Peter. I mean, how can a man be righteous before God? How can a condemned sinner be justified? These are the questions that are being asked. Paul says in verses 15 and 16, Who are we? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul begins to build a contrast between what was being falsely taught by these Judaizers, that observing the law for justification was necessary, and contrasting it with believing the gospel for justification. Paul pushes back the law and affirms the gospel. When we're trying to experience salvation by by doing works of the law, we're we're just creating a checklist. A a checklist list of, of things that we have to do, that we need to complete in order to save or to assure our place in salvation. The Judaizers here profess their faith in Jesus Christ. But they wanted everyone to obey everything that the law commands and refrain from everything that the law forbids. I mean, this means that you must keep the Ten Commandments. You must love and serve the living God. Have no other gods or God substitutes in your life. You must revere His name and His day. Honor your parents. Not tell lies. Be pure in your relationships. Do not desire what other people have. But, but the Judaizers are still not finished. It's not just the moral law that they were worried about, but it, it was also the ceremonial law that you have to observe. You have to be circumcised. You have to be part of the Jewish culture, the feasts, the festivals. You must pray and fast and give alms. Take your religion seriously. If you do all these things and not fail, then you make the grade. 
God will then accept you. You'll be justified by observing the law. I mean, this is what Paul's addressing here. I mean, and we find ourselves with, with the same problem, or, or we're aware of the same problem. This is the fundamental principle of every other religious system that we come in contact with. And actually, this is probably the fundamental principle of every moral system we come in contact with. The question is why? And, and John Stott answers this. He says it's popular because it's flattering. I mean, it tells a man that if you would only pull your socks up a bit higher and try a bit harder, he'll succeed in winning his own salvation. I mean, we like to hear that. It's in my control. If I just work harder, I mean, I can outwork everybody, and then I'll get it. But it's a delusion. I mean, it's a lie. Nobody has or ever will be justified by the law. Because nobody has ever kept the law perfectly. Observing the law, this perfect, the perfect obedience that it demands, is beyond every one of us. Only Jesus Christ has kept the law perfectly in every way. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we fail at every single point to obey the law of God perfectly. I mean, go back to the picture of the great chasm on the napkin. I mean, there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves across it. We're always going to be right there on the edge of the cliff. For, for here's the truth that we need to understand today, that there's only one way to be right with God, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came into the world to live and to die. In His life, His obedience to the law was perfect. In his death, he suffered for our disobedience. You see, on earth, he lived the sinless obedience to the law that, that, that's never been done. And on the cross, he died for our law-breaking. Since the penalty for disobedience to the law was death, he suffered for us. And all that's required of us to be justified is to acknowledge our sin and our helplessness. To repent of our, our self-righteousness. To put our trust and our confidence in Jesus Christ. So let's look at, at verse 16. And as we read 16, I want you to realize that Paul is beating your head with this truth. Paul begins with, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This is how he begins verse 16. And it's a pretty general statement here. Paul's being kind of nondescriptive. He uses the word a person. I mean, this could be any man, any woman. And look at how he begins. Now, it starts in 16 with the word know, but, but we recognize that there's a we before that. So we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This is not a we think. This is not a we hope. This is not a, well, maybe. This is a we know. Paul has already defended his authority and the gospel, and he's teaching now God's gospel 
and he knows. But if, but if we keep looking at verse 16, we, we see that Paul begins to get a little more personal. He, he directs it now from the general, and he starts looking a little more to himself. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Paul's now speaking of his own personal experience. This is an important statement. Justification by faith in Christ is not just an idea that Paul wants to try out in Galatia. This isn't something that he read about that he wants to work through. This isn't just an idea he wants to see others follow through with. But this is something that Paul has embraced, and this is something that has changed Paul's life. Let's see how verse 16 finishes. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul begins with a general person. He moves it more to himself. And now he speaks of no one. I mean, this is, this is an all-encompassing no one. This is all flesh. This is all mankind. This is everyone without exception. I mean, it doesn't matter what your religious upbringing was or is. This doesn't matter what your educational background is. It doesn't matter about your economic class, your social status. It doesn't matter about your racial origin. It does not matter. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. No one can be justified by observing the law. It is only when we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ that we can cross that great chasm. I mean, verse 16 is a forceful statement on the doctrine of justification. But, but Paul's not done. He actually shifts gears here and he moves. He makes this heavy statement and now shifts gears in 17 and through 20 that creates his argument. Paul writes, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For, though, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, Paul doesn't just lay out his argument here. I mean, he tells both the argument which the critics are using against him to try to mislead the church. And he also adds the argument that he's using to push back against them. I mean, it's almost as if his critics are saying, your doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone, apart from following the law, is a very dangerous doctrine. I mean, it completely weakens man's moral responsibility. I mean, if he can be accepted by trusting in Christ without the need to do good works, I mean, you're just encouraging him to break the law. That justification by faith without obeying the law only promotes sin. So how does Paul answer that? With a great big absolutely not. Not. 
I like to think that he yelled it really loud as he wrote it. I mean, Christ is never the author of sin. I mean, justification is a, is a legal transaction. To be justified is to be declared legally innocent. I mean, understand that when we are justified through Jesus alone, we're not merely declared not guilty, but we're declared innocent. And there is a difference. I mean, God declares a condemned sinner innocent. Our sin has been placed on another. Our sin has been placed on Christ. And His righteousness, His perfect, beautiful righteousness has been placed on us. I mean, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I mean, our sin has been placed on another. It's His perfect righteousness, His perfect keeping of the entire law of God. So when God looks at us, He sees the whole law perfectly fulfilled in us. This is not something that I can do. This is not something that you can do. It is only through Christ. Christ's obedience to the law is our comfort. Because we know that no matter what our failures in this world may be, and we recognize there will be many, that we're eternally credited by Jesus with the full keeping of the law. And we're also forgiven for all of our sin. Because Jesus has already taken the punishment of all of our sin, and he has taken it on himself. is an old story, but it's a story about a man in England who puts his Rolls Royce on a boat and he goes across the continent for the holiday. And while driving around Europe, something happens to the motor of his car. So he contacts the Rolls Royce company and, and he asks, what, do they, what does he suggest that they do? And they immediately fly out a new motor and two mechanics to him. Mechanics repair the car, replace the entire engine, and then fly back to England, leaving the man just to continue with his holiday. But it's after the man returns home, he begins to wonder how much that's going to cost him. So he writes Rolls-Royce a letter and asks how much he, he owes them. And he receives a reply back from their office, and it read, Dear Sir, there's no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. See, Jesus Christ's purity, his righteousness, and his finished work completely cover us. When God looks at us through him, he says there's no record against you. I mean, this is a difficult thing for us. We want to push back. There has to be more. There has to be something that I do or something that I can add to it, something that I can redeem my value. That's because we have proud hearts. And it's difficult to rest upon the righteousness of Christ. God humbles our pride by calling us to to completely surrender from any righteousness of our own to Jesus for justification. I mean, how could anyone possibly think that what we can do, is, is, that we could add, that, that we could do anything to add to the work of Jesus? But Paul's not done. 
verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The grace of God and the death of Christ. I mean, these are some very foundational pieces of Christianity. I mean, the idea that justification could be received through works and that salvation could be received by our own efforts is a very foolish idea. I mean, it undermines these foundational pieces. The grace of God and the death of Christ. If salvation is by observing the law, then it's not by grace. And the death of Christ becomes unnecessary if salvation is our own work. But yet many are still trying to establish themselves righteous by their own works. I mean, we say it's it's a noble thing to try to earn your way to heaven. There's far worse things you could do with your life, right? No. To deny both the nature of God and the mission of Christ, to minimize his death, It's to refuse to let God be gracious. It's to tell Christ that he didn't need to bother to die. If we're masters of our own destiny and can save ourselves, then the grace of God and the death of Christ become just redundant. Our greatest need is justification. Think back to that boy staring at the picture on the napkin. Without justification, we'll always be just staring across that chasm. Never able to cross. Without hope. Without justification, how can we spend eternity in God's favor? Justification is not by observing the law. It's only through faith in Christ. Martin Luther said, I must listen to the gospel which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. That he suffered and died and delivered me from sin and death. We love the idea of things being fair. We love the idea of justice. When someone speeds by you on the highway and moments later you pass them, pulled over to the side of the road with police lights behind them, we do think to ourselves, that's perfect justice. But it's when we see the police lights in our rearview mirror that we no longer look for justice, but at that moment we look for mercy. Justice and and fairness would never allow that 19-year-old boy to ever meet that professor. Justice and fairness would never allow that 19-year-old boy to eventually stand in this pulpit. And justice and fairness would never have kept that boy, would never have left him leave the edge of that cliff. But mercy, through justification, through faith in Jesus, changes all of that. And this morning, we give thanks to God for his mercy and the justification that we receive through him. Let's pray. 
Father God, we again give you thanks and praise for this morning. We thank you for the ability that we can come and to meet together, Father, that we could be a body of believers that would worship your name. Father, I thank you for the men and the women that are here. Father, the fact that you have brought them here, that you are working through their lives. Father, we ask that that you continue to provide them with with things that they need. Father, that you would continue to, to draw them to yourself, that they would be constantly changing to look more and more like your son. And Father, we give you thanks this morning for your son. That, Father, through him, we could be justified. Father, through him, we could be innocent. Father, we we recognize that this is not by our own doing. This is not by anything that we could bring. Father, this is only through the work that he has done. Father, allow us to remind ourselves of this daily. Allow us to be challenged by this daily. Father, allow us this to shape us daily. That we would strive to remind us that, that we bring nothing to this. It is not about our strength. It is not about what we have. It is merely the work of your Son on the cross. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. Father, most of all, we thank you for your mercy this morning. Father, I give you thanks for for working through my life, Father, introducing me to a stranger, Father, that would be willing to show me the need for justification through faith. Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.